Numbers chapter 16 is without question one of the most maligned and misunderstood chapters in all of Scripture. It's a long chapter, it's 50 verses. And honestly, we could probably spend several weeks exegeting the chapter because there's so much truth and information um, given in this one text. And one of the reasons why it's so misunderstood and, of course, misaligned by unbelievers in particular is the very idea that God would judge people in this manner. It's an offense to so many people. And for some people, you know, their solution is for Christians is to say, well, this is the God of the Old Testament. This is the Hebrew God and not Jesus. Okay, but it's also the brother, half-brother of our Lord Jesus in the New Testament. In the New Testament book of Jude, who said that false teachers today will, quote, perish in the gainsaying of Korah. New Testament. Korah? Yes. Reminding us, beloved, that there is no dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You want to know why? Because he's the same God. So what is it then that we're able to make of what is arguably the single most unique act of divine judgment in all of Scripture? As a matter of fact, beloved, it is so unique that in verse 30, Moses calls it a new thing. Notice what it says, verse 30. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking, all these words that the ground clave asunder, and that was under them. Now I think you'll agree with me tonight that whatever Korah and his family were guilty of before the Lord, that whatever this was, it must have been something that the God of heaven so despises or abhors that he would judge that sin in the most demonstrative and frightening way possible i mean think about it god opened up the earth god opened up the earth under the feet of korah and his family the one appertained and then swallowed them up alive arguably into the pit of hades itself and then closed the earth back just like that they completely perished from the face of the earth. There's no doubt about it, beloved. God wanted this whole nation to see and then to remember the sin of Korah. Notice verse 34. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them. Yeah, they cried, they screamed, they yelled. I mean, this is, this is sheer terror. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. Now again, what kind of transgression, what kind of sin could, could somebody commit against God that would cause the Lord to execute this kind of judgment? God does not always smite an Ananias and Sapphira in church for lying in church. But God wants us to know that's how he always feels about it. God doesn't always open up the earth and swallow up people that do this kind of a thing. But God doesn't change. So you want to ask, what would cause God to execute this kind of judgment? What could Korah 
and his family do that would lead Moses, by the way, the meekest man on earth. Moses of all people that would lead him to ask God to bring this about. Read the chapter sometime. You'll find that Moses goes to God and he says, Lord, I haven't asked a donkey from these people. I haven't asked for one thing from them. And they're going to do, they're wanting to do this thing against you. I'm praying that you will take care of the situation. That was Moses who always interceded for people. Well, obviously, the act that was committed here was one of rebellion. We've all heard sermons on rebellion, a lot of them from this text. I certainly have. The New Testament word I mentioned in the book of Jude, the word gainsaying, it means treason. And of course, it wasn't just rebellion, it wasn't treason against Moses, the man of God, it was really rebellion against God himself. This was his divine order they were rebelling against. The question again, though, is why? What was the reason for their rebellion? What was their motivation? What was the root that led to this fruit that we're reading about tonight? Because folks, this rebellion wasn't done on a whim and it wasn't committed in a vacuum. It wasn't just a treacherous act that led to this, certainly not in the mind of Moses. Nor was it the act of simply instituting their own priesthood. I've heard that preached many times. In other words, by joining up with the tribe of Reuben and encouraging Dathan and Abiram to circumvent God's design, Korah instituted his own priestly order, which he did do that, and which, when he did do that, certainly stirred the wrath of the holiness of God. However, that still doesn't get to the root of Korah's heart, and thus the source of Korah's sin, which Moses pinned on him when he asked him a question. In other words, Yes, Korah rebelled against Moses and he rebelled against God. But do you know why? And yes, this man wanted and instituted another priesthood, but do you know why? Yes, they murmured against Moses and against Aaron. But the question is, why was Korah motivated to do what he did? I can tell you that Moses knew exactly why. And here, beloved, is the only question, think about this for a moment, this will be the only question and the only issue that Moses ever offers to that man. Back at verse 8. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, ye sons of Levi. The Korahites were sons of Levi, were Levites. Seemeth it but a small thing unto you, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel, to bring you near to himself to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. Now follow this. When Moses addresses Korah, he says to him, Korah and all you sons of Levi that are under him, does it seem like a small thing to you? Seemeth it but a small thing to you. In other words, do you consider it some insignificant thing, some little thing, some light thing, what God has done for you by separating you into service for Himself? Is the work of God, is the will of God and the Word of God such a little tiny thing to you 
that you would have to start an insurrection in ambition towards something else that God didn't ask you to do. You see, we know that Korah was jealous, envious of Moses and Aaron. We know that, but why? We know that Dathan and Abiram wanted more power, but why? Why did they seek the priesthood? Look again at Moses' question, verse 9. And Moses said unto Korah, Hear, I pray you. Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister. That means to serve them. Verse 10, And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi with thee. And seek ye the priesthood also. In other words, is being near to God as a servant so insignificant to you that you've got to have more? That you've just got to have the priesthood as well? And by the way, if you're wondering if that question seemeth it but a small thing unto you, if, you, if you're wondering if that's really the root of Korah's sin and Dathan and Abiram's rebellion, notice how that question touched a nerve. Verse 12, And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. No, we're not going to come. Here's what they said. Is it a small thing that thou has brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou makest thyself altogether a prince over us? Is it a small thing, they said? In other words, look, they were so offended by that specific question that they take the same question and they hurl it back in sarcasm and anger. And you know how revealing that is. My dad used to say, if you throw a rock in a pack of of, of dogs, you'll know the one that it hits is the one that howls, right? Their reaction to Moses' question reveals the fact that Moses knew exactly what the real issue was. And that Moses knew that, Co- that Korah and the Reubenites viewed the things of God as but a small matter. And hear me, Beloved, it was that sin. It was the sin of not esteeming the things of God, of taking lightly the work of God, of complaining instead of being grateful for the calling of God. This was at the heart of Korah's rebellion. And if you think about it, listen, how similar, how identical is that his Korah's dissatisfaction and subsequent rebellion with that of Lucifer's. Lucifer was near to God. Lucifer was a minister of God. But it wasn't enough. He considered God's will for him but a small thing, a little thing, not big enough. And of course, the root of Korah's sin, far from being rare, is sadly all too common. All too common among the people of God. Verse 9 again, Seemeth it but a small thing unto you, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service. That means minister. What was he saying? 
He was saying, Korah, is, is separation and service to God just a little thing to you? Do you view God's work and God's will as a minor thing, a little in, unimportant sliver of the pie as a part of your life? Is it not enough for you that God has allowed you to serve His people? What's wrong with being a servant when you're being a servant to the Most High God? I was thinking about celebrities the other day and, and their fans because I just read an article. And you know, every year at spring training, I see these folks drive all the way down from St. Louis to watch their heroes play baseball. And if you drive down Main Street, you'll see that many of them get there hours before the gates open, and they will stay there hours after the gates close because they want to get a glimpse of their heroes. They want to maybe, hopefully, have one of them wave. It's like, oh, you saw me. And if they're really lucky, maybe even get their, their autograph. It's their idol. And of course, if ever Nolan Arenado or if ever Luis Arise from the Marlins, if they were to ever stop and say to the fan, hey, listen, would you wash my SUV today? <laughs> wash your SUV? Give me the keys. They'd break out in a cold sweat. I'll wash your SUV. They'd hyperventilate. Wash your car? Could I? May I? Oh, yes. Oh, great one. And then they would live for the rest of the year on the residual glory of that privilege of washing Luis's SUV. What do you think would happen? How do you think a Swifty would react if Taylor asked one of them to carry her guitar case to her car or bus? Why, that Swifty would be swift. She gets me. Am I right? That person would absolutely, I don't care, there's millions and millions of them. They're the most devoted, loyal fans I've ever seen on the planet. Maybe even more than Beyonce's fans. What are they called? Bay, bays, bay, bays. I don't know what they're called, but whatever, you know. <laughs> I totally made that up. <laughs> I'm sure there's a name for them. But you don't dare cross them, or her. They would absolutely fall over themselves. And there's a reason for that. For some people, it's the basis of their entire identity. For some people, you know, you want a real eye opener sometime, just take a famous celebrity, actor, even an athlete, and just Google their name and in any search engine, basically. And it's scary how many fan clubs, organized, large fan clubs, that so many of these people have, scores of them. And again, as I said, some of them have millions, hundreds of millions of followers. And just pick the name. They don't even have to be alive. Elvis. He's got dozens and dozens of fan clubs, all of which claiming to be, they're the official fan club. Well, what do they do, Pastor? Well, they, they sit around and they talk about Elvis. And they exchange Elvis stories and they talk about maybe Elvis sightings and Elvis memorabilia. Elvis what he loves, Elvis what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he didn't like, what he ate. For $1,000, you can buy his sweaty socks, and so it goes. 
because they get identity from that. And again, for the ones that are alive, there is no task too small. There is no request that would ever be too big that one of those fans wouldn't jump at the chance to do it. But let's talk about God. Let's talk for a moment about how people feel about His work and His will. I don't know if you ever remember that Andy Griffith, there was an old movie he was in one, before he was in, in his TV show called No Time for Sergeants. His drill instructor said, as it kind of like to get annoying, he was annoyed by him, he says, I'm going to make you the OLC. I want to be the OLC, Official Latrine Commander. And he was so excited. He was the official latrine commander. And you know that hillbilly? Wowie, I'm the official latrine. And with his toothbrush, man, he kept that place immaculate. Down on his hands and knees, polishing and repolishing. He absolutely, whistling happily as he worked, he loved it. He wasn't the brightest bulb in the package, but he took his job seriously and happily. He took pride in the lowest possible position that his drill sergeant could give him. For Korah and his sons, their position wasn't even small. Their position, actually, maybe in the eyes of the world, it was tiny, but in reality, beloved, they were given the task of transporting the items within the tabernacle when it moved. That was their job. That's what he despised. That's what he thought was a little thing, not enough. Their job, including the Ark of the Covenant and what was inside of it. But, because he wanted to be a priest himself, Korah thought that his job was too small, insignificant. And Moses called him out. He took it lightly. And then God, wanting to show the entire nation the truth of that attitude and that mindset and that heart and preserved it in His Word for us, He reveals that He doesn't need anyone with that kind of attitude in His work. You know, God did not look at Korah and all of these men and say, I just don't know how I'm going to do without you guys. You people are indispensable. How am I ever going to replace? And by the way, also the leaders. You see verse 2 there? Look at what it says. There were 250 men of, quote, renown. Princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation. Surely God can't afford to without all that talent, all that ability, and all that leadership. No? Look at verse 35. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. So much for being indispensable. Just like that, God consumes 250 of the brightest, finest men in all the congregation. You know why? He had to stop this rebellion, this attitude. Well, Pastor, who's going to replace them? These are men of renown, men of talent, men of ability. Who's going to replace them? I can tell you, 250 people who are servants and don't consider it. A small thing to live for God. Let me ask you this question. Is, now the Bible says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. This is Christ's church. The question is, is 
his church no big deal to you? Is it a small thing to you to sing hymns in worship to God? I'm amazed at how many Christians, for them, congregational singing is just a time for searching the internet or for chatter. It means nothing. Is it a small thing to you when you give an offering? She's like, eh, just, just, just like giving money to the Boy Scouts. It's just a little thing to you. Is it a small thing when you stand up and we, together we read the Word of God as they did in the congregation of Israel? Is that just a nothing? Seemeth it a small thing unto you when we pray together? Is it a small thing to be in the choir, to work in the nursery, to be an usher, the security team, teach a class, nursing home? Brother Rick told me about preaching in the nursing home this morning and how he got down on his knees next to this dear lady and answered a question. Is it a little thing to welcome a visitor to you? Verse 9 says that God separated them. You know, the New Testament teaches that God has separated all of us in this economy. We are all sanctified, separated unto God. All of us. Pastor, would God really become this angry and execute this much judgment because some people took their jobs lightly just because they treated the big things of God as little things? Look at verse 20, would you? Back up a little bit. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. You know what he's saying to him? He's saying, hey, Aaron and Moses, you better, you better step aside. Go stand over there, because you don't want to be near these people when I do what I'm about to do. And you know what? Moses, again, in typical meek fashion, this time it says he falls on his face in verse 22 and he intercedes on behalf of all of the people. But the point is this. God looked at Moses and Aaron as apparently the only two men who were pleased and satisfied in the service of God in these moments. Seemeth it but a small thing. That God has separated you and brought you near to Himself in service to Him. Something else is revealed in this text. Not only did Korah, Dathan, and Abiram consider God's service to be a little thing, but they also considered His salvation to be a little thing. This is mind-blowing to me. Look at verse 12, would you? And Moses sent... Dathan Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou makest thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. We're not even going to talk to you. It's incredible that these men called Egypt a land of milk and honey. They refer to their old slavery, the land of idolatry itself, by referring to it with the very same language that God reserved for Canaan, the promised land, which was still promised, by the way. So think about that. All that God did for these people, you just go back to the taskmasters and the slavery and the brutality 
and the idolatry and the darkness and the blindness. God delivered them. That's redemption. All that God had done for these people, delivering them from Egypt and delivering them from absolute bondage, not only was that, had that become a light thing in their eyes, it actually became a despised thing. They had gotten to the point that they didn't care about the magnitude of God's so great salvation. And so it wasn't that important. And the Bible says in verse 15 that when Moses heard that, when he heard that, he was very wroth. He was filled with anger, and you know what? Rightly so. Now, without trivializing this, beloved, let's make this practical when it comes to God's kingdom. I don't know, those of you who are golfers, all three of you in this room, have you ever played with someone that never fills their divots? You know, when you take an iron and you swing an iron and you're on the fairway, um, if it's a good shot, you'll, you'll make a divot about the size of a dollar bill. It's a big chunk of grass that you just take out of the earth. This beautifully manicured lawn. All they ask, now they put sand everywhere. They put it in the cart on both sides of the cart. They put it in little sand buckets. They also put it in these little portable things you can carry with you. They make it as easy as possible. And there's signs everywhere that say, please fill your divots, please fill your divots. It's just respect. Because if you don't fill the divots, it'll take months for that hole to, to heal. If you put sand in it, especially in Florida, the roots won't burn out in the sun. And it just takes a few days, a couple weeks to heal. So there's divots all over the place. And I don't know if you've ever played with someone that never fills their divots, but I have, and it drives me crazy. Same thing with repairing ball marks. It's when a ball hits the green. Jason, you don't know what that's like, but when a ball hits the green, <laughs> it leaves a mark, okay? <laughs> if it's airborne and it hits the green, it bruises it. So you have to have a ball repair marker. You could buy one, but leave it at home. You won't need it. But you, you fix it with that thing. But it's really disrespectful, you know, to the course. Mike said the other day, he said, be good to the course and the course will be good to you or something like that, right? It's not always true, trust me. It's, it's respect and disrespect, that's all. Well, that's just golf. Golf is dumb in the scheme of eternity. It doesn't matter. But let's say God's work. Someone practices and they practice and they sing a special. And you talk instead of listening to it. Is that respecting or disrespecting? Someone who's ministering to the Lord. Is it just a light thing to you? Opening up the hymn book and singing the hymns from your heart? Which we're commanded to do in Colossians and Ephesians. Commanded to do congregationally as a people being prepared if you teach for a special choir or is it just a eh, it's a light thing to you as i mentioned giving helping to keep the building tidy clean greeting visitors Today's Wilma's birthday, Wilma Minner. Do you know how many people have said to me, the first person who ever talked to me in your church was Wilma Minner? Man, that's a blessing, right? Do you know how many testimonies there are in this room? Someone in this room just told me one the other day. 
How many testimonies they say, so-and-so was the first person to talk to me and they're the reason I came back. They're not taking lightly the things of God. Serving in the nursery, children's church, Sunday school. Everything I'm telling you right now, I was going to tell in the Sunday school meeting later. So you're getting it early. It's going to be a short meeting. <laughs> Whatever it is, it may be a little thing. It's not a light thing. It's never a light thing if it's for, it's for the God of heaven. In fact, nothing done for God. We read this morning in the text that Jesus looked at the, the widow and her mites, her pennies. Half a penny she threw in. And Jesus said, she's done more. When Jesus said, you give a cup of water in my name. There's no such thing as a light thing when it comes to the things of God. And for the things of God, a believer must never be cavalier about it. When it comes to salvation, what God has done for us. May God help us never to be lukewarm and tepid but rather to sing about showers of blessings like you mean it. Sing about Beulah Land like you really want to go there and you believe it. Sing about being near the cross like you desire it truly in your heart. Which brings me to third and final thought. Service, salvation, and separation. Now by separation, what I mean, I'm referring to the other Korahites who are down the road that bore Korah's fame and stigma. I'm talking about his grandsons, great-grandsons, great-great-grandsons, and on it goes. You recognize that these were people who separated themselves from the example of their forebears by not following their example. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, for example, Samuel. Samuel was a son of the Korahites. During the reign of King David, the Korahites became devoted and brave warriors. The sons of Korah eventually became the musicians in the temple so that among the biblical psalms, 11 of them are attributed to the sons of Korah. Think about that when you go to Psalm 42, Psalm 44 through, through 89, Psalm 84 and 85, Psalm 87 and 88, and you see in the little subscription it says, Korah, think about that, that they were not tied. The Korahites became doorkeepers and custodians in the tabernacle. And I just say that as a reminder that just because your parents or your grandparents or your brothers or your sisters, just because others in your little circle there considered service or salvation as small things, unimportant, insignificant things, doesn't mean that you have to. Nobody is ever stuck with a bad example or bad history in the family tree. Nobody. And for tonight, all I'm really saying for us as God's people is to let us esteem highly the things that God esteems highly. That's all. When Christians are glib about God's word and God's work and God's will, their children will be downright disrespectful. Do you know what Moses' reaction was? His very first reaction when he heard that the sons of Korah took lightly their calling. When he heard that they didn't think their calling was enough, do you know his very first reaction was? Look at it with me. Verse 
And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes and assemblies famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. He's not being a drama king. It really, it really broke his heart. You know, I was thinking this afternoon when I was going over this text again that I was ordained to the gospel ministry the same night as my wedding rehearsal. It just happened to coincide the same night. And I wept at both of those events. I wept at my wedding rehearsal because this dear lady was singing a song that Louise had chosen and it was beautiful and I wept. And I wept at my ordination because I'll never forget the pastor saying, Jim, you're going to take a key. And he held up a key. He said, this is the key to First Baptist Church. And he said, every time I put the key in the door, I think to myself, wow, what a holy, high, glorious responsibility. And I have to tell you, every time I walked into the doors of that church, not with a key, because it would be months before I would be an assistant pastor somewhere, I was reminded of that. Wow. What a privilege. What a responsibility. I wept at my wedding rehearsal because I was thinking, wow, what a joy, what a privilege, what a responsibility. I wept at the ordination because I thought, wow, what a privilege and what a responsibility. All over this country, there are people, church, serving God, the Bible, hymns, soul winning, visitation, giving their offering. It's just nothing to them. It's just a tradition, and they take it lightly. I hope we'll look at this text and be reminded that there's no business like God's business, and God's business is the greatest business in all the world. And God's people said, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that, that in as much as in our flesh, in our frailty, we do fall pray to envy, to the carnal desires of thinking that there's something better we could be doing, something more important, that there's something in your church and your work that is menial when there's nothing that's menial. I pray, Father, you'll help us to be reminded tonight that we have a great, glorious, high calling as your people who are separated, sanctified unto you, that anything and everything we do in your name, whether in this property, off this property, in our homes, at work, whatever it is, everything we do is unto you. It is sanctified. With heads bowed and eyes closed, who would say, Pastor Blaylock, I'm saved tonight by the grace of God, but I needed this message and God has spoken to me. Anybody like that? Would you raise your hands all through the building? God bless you. Maybe you're not sure about your salvation. Could we pray for you? I'm not sure I'm saved tonight, Pastor Blaylock. I won't embarrass you, but could we pray for you? That's me, preacher. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that? Not sure about your own salvation? You know, I mentioned the illustration of the key. 
You take a track, you hand it to somebody, same thing. It's like, wow, wow, right now, I can be used by the Holy Spirit of God to make it have an impact, make a difference in someone's life. Father, bless now the invitation. Please have your will and your way in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.